It's everything. I've had at least four really good job offers to leave this state, pack my wood shop up, come. I love West Virginia. Welcome to Appalachian Startup, stories of new ideas that eventually became thriving businesses in areas that most would consider a bad investment. I'm J.D. Belcher, and I started this podcast because I took the same path as a lot of these folks. I'm a former coal miner, and now I make films through my own production company called JJN Multimedia. I wanted to hear others speak of their journey to not only give new beginners hope, but to help me grow as a fellow entrepreneur. Eddie Austin Woodworks is one of those precious gems of talent tucked away in these beautiful hills of Appalachia. You can find his custom furniture pieces across the United States, and I was lucky enough to sit down with him after he delivered our custom conference table to the JJM Multimedia office in Pineville, West Virginia. His love for woodworking over the past 20 years has taken him from the apprentice level to now owning and operating a custom woodworking shop in Lincoln County, West Virginia. Enjoy. My business is a... uh woodworking business first and foremost we offer a lot of different products from things as small as cutting boards um, to things as large as full elevations of homes closets kitchens interiors we we primarily build furniture and built-in cabinetry Um, we're out of uh, lincoln county in hamlin west virginia that's where i've been that's where i was born and raised um, since we've lived in hamlin from about 1985 and on I'm uh, trained in woodworking from the University of Rio Grande in uh, Gallipolis, Ohio, in that area. Uh, graduated there in 2005 uh, with an associate's degree in fine woodworking. And at the time, I also had a, a job working for Jim Probst, uh, who's a woodworker in Hamlin. And uh, a well-known woodworker, actually, had a national recognition. And so I was pretty fortunate to have uh, good people around me. Right. Um, a lot of good training from there and from the school. My business serves about 50 clients a year. We do we do probably anywhere between 40 and 50 jobs a year. Um, we stay pretty busy. Uh, I'm running about 20 weeks lead time right now. So uh, what would you say, uh, why did you start building things? You know, how old were you when you started figuring out like, hey, I kind of have a talent for putting things together? Right. Uh, growing up, my, my dad always had side jobs. It was the only way that we made it. Um, he would build decks and things. And so I would say growing up, that's the only thing I really did involved wood. I had a job as a dishwasher at 17. And I went into work one day and they um, said, here's your last check. We're closing down the restaurant. And at the time, um, Really, my, my story really it starts with a girl, as so many things in life do. Um, I had just started uh, dating this girl, Emma, who I ended up marrying. And when I lost my job at the as a dishwasher at 17, her dad offered me a job in a wood shop, and I'd never been I'd never been in a wood shop before. It was only five minutes from home, so it was really close. And so I never forget the first day I get off the school bus and you know, I go into the wood shop and there's just these piles of uh, sawdust in the floor and you could barely walk. And you could tell that there was so much work going that these guys that were building the furniture, you know, they, they didn't have time to clean. And so that's basically how I started. I started at 17. 
the the interesting um, part of that is I'm still in the same building. Um, I, yeah, I left for some schooling, but I still kept a part-time job there. And then I just worked my way all the way up till I bought bought the building and I bought the furniture maker out. And now my business is full-time in the same building. So for years, I would tell myself, there's no way I'll be back in this building this summer because it would be so hot. But right back in it. And so yeah. there I am. Yeah. I'll, do you remember the first thing you built? Yeah. So... Um, back to the girl. Um, it was Valentine's day. I'd been at the shop for maybe, maybe five months and I wanted to build her something. And, um, Jim was a really good guy. He would spend some time training me and helping me. And so the first thing that I built was a really small cherry jewelry box that my wife still has. Oh, cool. How big is it? Um, it's about as big as the size of a book if a book were standing in front of you. So it's, it's not really big. Right. Were you really crafty, you know, before 17? Like, were you artistic? Did you like to draw or anything like that? Because, uh, you know, a lot of your work has these custom inlays, um, uh, like this table, which we'll get into uh, in a second. But, like, were you always artistically talented? I, I, Looking back on it now, because I think about those things, I didn't realize that at the time, but I was. Um, I used to do a lot of freehand drawing, but I never was interested in art um, in, in school, like when in the classes, like I could care less. But looking back on it, um, you know, I was always like, even at like local camps or 4-H camps, I was always doing the craft classes and things. And, and I always liked working with my hands. I just didn't realize it until my early 20s. So you and uh, Emma... When did you get married? 2000 and she's going to kill me. 2007, I think. 2007 or 2006. I think it was 2007. Oh, cool. We got married around, uh, I got married in 09. How does she help with, you know, being an entrepreneur in the daily grind? And sometimes, you know, it's long hours. And how important is it to have, you know, if you have a partner, someone who understands that? Well, first, um, it was never her dream to have a woodworking business. And so that's something that she has just put up with <laughs> from me. <laughs> now she does offer a lot of support in that my hours sometimes are long and sometimes I have to work seven days a week or sometimes I have to go out of town for a week at a time to build something on site. And so um, she really sacrifices a lot um, at home, you know, with the kids and taking care of things like that so that I can do, you know, the job that I like to do. Um, and that's how she really supports it. And she still would probably tell you she doesn't want a wood job. <laughs> right. Right. And y'all have kids? Yeah, I have two. I have a uh, six-year-old and an eight-year-old, Elliot and Eva. Mm -hmm. Um. So did you ever have, like, when you first started in the wood shop there and you was an apprentice, I guess it's called, or... uh. Did it ever feel like a nine to five type thing or did you ever, do you ever get complacent in what you do? That's the really interesting thing. Um, I, I think I kind of wear people down a little bit. I never get tired of woodworking. I lose track of time all the time at work. It's nothing to spend 10 hours in a row, you know, at the shop and, and lose track of what I'm, what I've been doing. I, ne I never get tired of it. I can build for 10 or 12 hours a day and then go home and talk about it or carry conversations with other woodworkers who are interested in learning or just what, you know, what we were doing. Um, f for me, it never feels like work. I'm just uh, very fortunate that, you know, I get to 
make a, a good living doing exactly what I love. Right. What's your favorite part about it? Like, I know you do a lot of work with refurbished wood and material like that. Um, uh, like this table, what it, you said it would come out of an old um, post office or what did yeah. you, what was, tell me the story about this table. So this, this table is made of pine and it's heart pine. It's pretty old. It's probably close to 200 years old. They were beams in an old building in Pennsylvania um, that we obtained. And, you know, they were full of nails, but, you know, that's the thing with, with wood is that sometimes the out, outside um, is very misleading to what could be on the inside. And so almost 20 years of experience uh, picking through lumber and things, I knew that these were going to be pretty special. And uh, so that's kind of the story. They're reclaimed. They were, they had another job for years and years, and now they're a dining table. I mean, they do have a lot of distresses and, and cracks and knots in them, but they, they tell a story. And, you know, this, the stories aren't always perfect. So we all have knots and cracks, and, um, but there's, there's beauty in those. And so you know, it, it made for a really, really neat table. Right. So there is story, a storytelling aspect to this. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Every piece I build has some kind of story to it. Mm-hmm. And you said, how, how old is this wood? I I think that the the wood itself before the tree was cut down it's it's well over 150 years at least. Mm-hmm. So the the process you know it's it's nice and smooth now. But what does it look like before? You know what's the before picture? Well, um, it was very rough. Um, the kind of boards that when you grab with your bare hands, you're trying not to get cut or get snagged. Um, you're looking out for nails and things. They they weren't very very pretty. They're all one solid color of of a dark brown, and um, you know there just wasn't anything great about them yet, other than they were really cool. You know they told a story. They're really thick, which makes them um, unique. And um, what's the process like? Uh, what's the first thing you do? Well, the the first thing we did was uh, we de we denailed them or removed any kind of debris that would hurt our machines. Mm-hmm. We pulled almost two dozen nails out of these boards. Some of them were five inches long, which is we thought was pretty unique. Um, and at that point, once once we're free of anything that could harm our machines, uh, we start we start milling them up. And something like this, I tend to when I design or as I'm building, uh, I use a less is more approach. I want the wood to be able to to tell the story of where it's been, and so. I won't remove every defect. I won't remove every crack. Um, I'll leave some rough spots. I mean, on the underside of this table, it still has notches cut into it, you know, where these beams would meet each other and be nailed together. And so it's a fine line of, you know, making it very attractive and smooth and, and good to the touch without hurting someone, but also leaving that bit of ruggedness to it. Mm-hmm. So mill, what's, what is a mill to somebody well, who may not know? Um, we're talking about... And in, in for a for a cabinet shop or a woodworker's shop, uh, a jointer, which you run across uh, one edge of the board and it makes it straight. And we're talking about a planer, which mills thicknesses of wood. So these boards started out a little over three inches thick. And so we milled at least, I think, almost a quarter to a half inch off of them to get them uh, at, a, at a final destination that would look attractive for a dining table or a conference table. Mm-hmm. And at that point, they go through our saws, which is a standard table saw. And 
And then they'll go um, through a through a glue up stage. So there's actually four boards, and we do uh, glue ups in halves. So there's two halves of this table, and then it'll go through a sanding machine that we have, and then we'll final uh, glue up the whole top, and then and the rest of it's all by hand after that. Mm-hmm. And these. Walnut, uh, what are they called? Butterfly? They're in, called or? butterfly mm-hmm. joints. Um, they are an homage to George Nakashima, who was one of the original furniture builders of natural edges or or uh, someone who really celebrated the defects in wood. And it's a joint that is very strong, that stabilizes the cracks or the knots in the wood um, by using a, a cross grained inlay basically and it's in the shape of a, a butterfly or a bow tie um, a lot of people today call them bow ties and it drives me nuts because i'm i still like the original mm-hmm. the butterfly joint <laughs> right but um yeah that's what they are and so the, in this in this table they're made of walnut and so we inlaid i forget there's seven to ten Right. inlays of these throughout the table. Mm-hmm. So do you have just these laying around? Uh, do you do so many of them that you just like, okay, well, I'll grab a few of these and put them in there? Or No, each um, each top is different. And each time I use those, um, I might use a different wood for the inlays because I'm looking for something that could be attractive to match what we're doing. And so they're all each made um, for each for the project. And so I thought walnut would look good for these. So we, we hand cut those. We hand chisel and uh, you know, remove the wood for the inlay. It, there's no machine that cuts it. It's all handwork, and they're actually quite tricky. It, re- it requires a lot of focus each time you do one. Mm-hmm. And the purpose of them is just to pull the wood together and to keep it from separating. Right. It, it stabilizes it, makes it stronger, and then also it adds a really, really nice um, decorative detail as well. Uh, brings me to another question. Like when you get a, you know, to the point now you've been doing this so long, when you get to a certain point of someone calls you and says, you know, I want a bookshelf. Do you have certain templates of like, well, I know the base of what I need and I know kind of, you know, the thickness of the shelves and this and that. Do you kind of work off templates to build or do you approach everything, you know, differently? Well, that's that's the interesting thing. <clears throat> about my business these days. Um, early on when I had the job working at Probes Furniture Makers, we had a uh, line of furniture. And so everything had a template or a pattern. And, um, you know, you might you might make a run of 10 bookcases at once. And, and so you have a pattern. But the, the difference in my business these days is that we're primarily building one piece at a time, even though there might be six or seven projects going in the shop. They're never the same. We never, we hardly ever build the same thing. And so a lot of times I'll make a template and it's just used for one piece. And if I think it's something that could be handy for the future, we'll save it and we'll hang it on the wall. But a lot of times they just go right back to the trash and uh, I develop a new template for the next one. Do you, uh, you know, that first client consultation when someone wants a custom piece, how does that conversation go? Or do you ask them certain questions about what they want out of their their piece, or or how after that first conversation, you know, what do you get from that as far as your next step? The the first thing that I usually do, um, I just try to get to know someone. I, I want to find out not so much woodworking wise, but I want to learn a little bit about their personality, and that will usually lead into things that they like. And it will help me um, design something that's tailored just for them. All of our projects are tailored just for the client. Um, you know, an example of, of your piece is that it has um, 
pop-up towers uh, for electric in it. And then that may not be something that we do for, for everyone. Um, you know, each piece is unique to that client and right. special for that client. Show that pop-up tower. Pull that one up so the camera can see it. Kind of how that works. Yeah. So, you know, you can use that to plug in your laptop or whatever. It's got USB ports in it. And uh, so... I remember telling you that, like, it'd be cool, man, if, like, you could, like, put outlets in it somehow. And you was like, yeah, I know exactly. There's these pop-up towers. And I was like, yeah, that sounds good. So I think you got such a portfolio now to where people kind of trust you to be creative. And that's that's probably one of the greatest joys of, of where I'm at now in my career. Like I said, almost 20 years in, I have clients that fully trust my decisions it is not uncommon anymore to go into someone's house and they say, well, I want this closet made. And we'll go through a whole list of things that he or she may want to store in it. And then they'll say, you pick the paint color because you know best. <laughs> and, and that's always a challenge. But, you know, I sell a lot of unique furniture items. One, one job that we did this year um, went to Michigan. And the lady um, loved creativity and loved different. And she said, you... You just design it the way that you would think it would work best. And and I really enjoyed that. We did some of our best work. And it was just an amazing piece that really challenged me to push um, my skills and design and skills of building. And what I'm finding is that people are really putting a lot of trust into me these days. Just you, you do what you think looks best and we'll love it. Right. Right. When did that start, you know, when you... Um decided to take over the business or, or buy the business out. Um, did you do custom, like do custom work from the beginning? Has that always been a thing or did you kind of develop the confidence to do that? Because I mean, something like this, you make wrong, one wrong cut on something or, you know, especially with the inlays, like there you are with a, uh, uh, eight foot long, you know, something that could ruin the whole yeah, top yeah, if I exactly. mess it up. Exactly. Yeah. So, when did you get the confidence to do that? Well, early, early on, I would say around 2006 or 2007 in that area, when I still worked at Probes Furniture, my, my, my part of what I did there was custom, mm -hmm. and so it was probably about that time that I started building different pieces every time. And maybe it would be something I'd built before, but not very often. And so it would always be something different. And then it kind of, the market kind of drove me to that, that people wanted unique items that someone else didn't have. And they had a limited space. Maybe it measured 56 and a half inches and a big box store only offers a 60 inch cabinet. And so that kind of drove me into uh, custom. I, I was very fortunate that I got a big break. Um, a big opportunity that really allowed me, my, my business was part-time for about four years and it really allowed me to go full-time. I had met this amazing client in Philadelphia that stopped in at Tamarack in Beckley one day and said, I'm looking for a young furniture maker to build um, some products for me off of my farm in Williamson. And he and I hit it off. And to, to this day, I mean, it's almost uh, seven or eight years later, I still work at a large capacity for him. I've made 36 trips to Philadelphia. Um, we did a full 10,000 square foot home. We did his offices. We've done six kitchens. We've, 
we've done so many jobs in Philadelphia and I've spent so much time there that it's almost like a second home. I Like I've developed relationships with people on the street. We've spent so much time there. And so he really allowed my business to take off because I had full consistent work and it was about the same time that I broke away from, from Probst Furniture and I just had all this freedom to really explore you know, what I wanted my business to be. Mm-hmm. And talk about uh, the furniture you made for Tamarack. What all did you make that's there? Well, I mean, we've made a lot of different things. I mean, even going back to the probes furniture days when my first exposure to Tamarack, probably more than 15 or 16 years ago, we made um, all of the cherry conference room cube chairs and settles that people sit on to this day. Um, every piece that I have made for Tamarack is sold. And, you know, at this point, we're probably over two dozen pieces. It's not a huge attraction for a furniture maker as much as it is for some other people because it's it's a place where people are traveling. So they may not have uh, the back of a truck to fill up with furniture. And so we've been very fortunate that the pieces that we make are larger in size. They're not a, a sm- you know, small cutting board. A lot of times it's a table or a plant stand. We've sold every piece. And so we have actually developed clients that have seen our work in, at Tamarack. It's a great thing for our state and it's been great for me as well. Right. How many employees do you, do you have other full-time employees uh, with your wood shop or so part-time? I have um, people that build for me that own woodworking businesses already. Uh, you may call it contracted labor. Um, I have one guy that builds for me full-time and then I have a guy that builds for me part-time. And then I have situational people that work for me. Say it's a large uh, hand-painted job. Um, I'll bring in someone to help do some of the paint work or things like that. But for the, for the most part, um, there might be two, two people in the building to three people at the most. Right. How did you establish, you know, did someone help you create that initial business model of like, okay, well, here's how I'm going to charge to make this chair or, you know, how do you break down your pricing structure to figure this stuff out? Well, and that was, um, again, like I, I like the word lucky. Like I've been so lucky. I really lucked into just developing clients. It just happened with hard work. That's the only thing I can really, I was asked for business models. I was asked, um, questions like, you know, who's your, who's your, um, who's your best client? Like who, who's your best clientele that you're trying to reach? And all these things just happened with hard work. I, I didn't develop a plan or a business plan. I just kept building things for people and trying my best. And it just, it just compounded into more work. Um, I, I do a couple of different things for pricing. Number one, I have to look at the materials, how much the materials cost. I have to look at, you know, hardware and finishing costs. I have to develop sometimes a spreadsheet of labor costs. Over time, you kind of sense um, of what something will cost because you've built it before. And so you have a ballpark. Um, But it's something that I never actually do. I never give ballparks because they've always gotten me in trouble. (laughs) And so if someone's willing to wait, it usually takes about a week um, for me to develop drawings for someone and to turn in an actual quote. It doesn't ever cost anybody anything to do that. And, um, so I'll, I'll make some charts and then I have a couple formulas that I do. And then it comes down to a balance of that and what I believe, you know, the market is for it. Gotcha. So drawings, uh, what 
do you use a certain program to, you know, kind of give them an idea like this is what it's going to look like. Here's my approach. Here's the variables that I'm not too sure about yet. Like, how does that work? What do you draw that in? Well, um, I was very fortunate. So I was trained to um, old school draft on a drafting table. And I found that like I could do a kitchen in about a week and, or, you know, constantly erasing, drawing the scale. And then I got, um, as part of a grant through the Tamarack Foundation, I got trained in AutoCAD and it changed my business. Um, I was able to design a piece of furniture in an hour, um, a kitchen in an evening. And it allowed me to um, display a, a 2D model, a face drawing to someone very quickly. And so I still draw in, in AutoCAD for maybe maybe six years now. I've had AutoCAD and, and just I'm in love with that. Awesome. Did you see a, a difference, you know, when you started AutoCAD? Did your clients appreciate, you know, seeing a a more detailed version of a quote or how did that, how did, did you notice a response? I think they did. And it's, it's kind of funny. Um, you know, there was several clients that had gotten hand drawings from me and then the next year they got um, computerized drawings from me. And I think the initial reaction was like, whoa, okay. Like this is looks more professional, <laughs> right. you know, but then there's some people that actually love that. Um, you know, my hand, my invoices are still handwritten and you'd be surprised how many people say, oh my gosh, you just don't see that anymore. We love that handwritten invoice. So now I still you, try to keep that. Now that you mention it, yeah, like all my invoices, uh, I do the first of the month. It's just, you know, a PDF. Here you go. Maybe yeah. a digital signature. Usually not. But I was thinking like it would be cool to have a hand-drawn version of your table, you know. Yeah. That, that, that is awesome. What, what states have you did work for? Like where are your pieces at, you know, in the United States? Well, um, again, I've been lucky or very fortunate that we have shipped work all across the United States. In the last few years, um, some of the states that we've, we've done, uh, Nevada, Las Vegas, Nevada, we've done California, Texas, Michigan, North Carolina, South Carolina, Florida, everywhere, Pennsylvania, New York. Um, we've done work in two other countries. We shipped to Canada. We've shipped pieces to Austria. Um, wow. Yeah. So we, We've hit a lot of the states, and I, I don't. I actually think about you know I should keep a little pin pin board, and we should pin one every time. But I think part of the reason I don't do things like that is I'd rather be focused on things that I'm building. And so I, when you run a business, you wear so many hats, you only have so much focus. And so I try to to just stay focused on the work. Mm -hmm. Those mundane uh, processes of a business, you know, how do you? Uh, divide up all of these responsibilities. You know, how many hats do you wear? Do you put some of the administrative administrative work off, or how do you how do you designate your time? Well, I, I have found number one, I, I love to um, watch people. I think that people are very interesting, and I've um, love to watch people that are successful at what they do. And I have found that people that are successful at what they do are very good at juggling their time. They're very good time managers. And so I put back a little bit of time each week to take care of office things. I do have um, a lady who comes in and handles my um, receipts and things. She files them. I save them. She files them. She puts it in a program for me, and that just made life so much easier. 
the first few years I had my business, I did my taxes myself. And then I hired an accountant, and that made things so much easier. Um, time is always tough for me. As a, as a woodworker first, I would love nothing more than to just be in the shop building something constantly. But as we've gotten more and more successful, um, it seems to take me out of the wood shop more and more as well. Uh, you know, in addition to running my business full time, I also direct um, two uh, wood shop training programs for Coalfield Development, and that takes up you know a good bit of my time too. And so, it's a tough juggle, and it's like I said, it's something that I I don't have the ability to turn it off. It's on my mind all the time. You know, businesses or woodworking or even the kids that are learning to do woodworking. Like I'm constantly thinking about how to make them better, or how to teach them better, or to help them out in some way. Right. And you're talking about Saul's Edge Woodshop uh, with Coalfield. Tell me about that and uh, 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 break down like a, a synopsis of what that is. <laughs> well, um, Coalfield development in general is a really great thing for our state. It is training young men and women to work with their hands, to learn different trades and skills, um, to replenish our workforce based off of uh, the coal mining jobs and things that we used to have. And so Saw's Edge is a um, wood shop program. It's a two-year wood shop program that uh, provides um, these, we call them crew members. There are people that work in our system and they go to school, but it provides them with 33 hours a week of work that they get paid for. It provides them with six hours a week um, community college hours. It provides them with three hours a week of what we call professional or personal development. So things like how to balance a checkbook, how to change a tire, just ordinary life skills that it seems like young people these days um, haven't learned in high school. And so Saul's Edge builds very high-end products, mainly out of reclaimed material. And we're already starting to um, ship products across the United States. And so the kids, the kids will go through there. They'll graduate with a two-year degree. They'll be paid. So they'll have two years work experience when they leave us. And we have a hundred percent job placement rating for, for these kids that graduate from there. So it's a really neat program that teaches people to work with their hands. Mm -hmm. How do you approach teaching someone who, uh, you know, uh, may be afraid of splinters or, you know, as someone that hasn't sure. been around this stuff. What What is that process like? Well, I mean, we get we get crew members in there all the time that have never swung a hammer. They've never used a power drill. And so the best way that I, that I approach it is I think about, well, what was this like for me the first time? How, you know, how can I make that, that you know, things that my father taught me how to use tools for the first time. How can I break that down and make that easy for them? It's it's a stressful environment because you're, as a woodworker, you're running machines that could easily, you could lose a, a finger. You could really get hurt bad on some of these machines. And so it's very important um, to teach safety first and techniques. And so I think that's the greatest challenge. Um, you know, I, I've been, you know, teaching it off off and on basically for a little over three years now. We haven't had an accident. I think that's the thing I'm most proud of because, you know, it, it is serious business. Yeah. Have you ever had an accident? 
Not really. I've had a few, probably the worst accidents that I've had, I've been with hand chisels. And it sounds crazy. I run 10-inch, 12-inch saw blades all the time. Um, sometimes my fingers, at the closest they ever get is probably four inches to something. I think that most woodworkers would tell you that's the standard. Um, but the worst, the worst I've ever been hurt was with, with chisels. Um, you know, you never put your hand in front of a chisel. Sometimes, uh, you know, you catch yourself, you do something stupid and you pay the price for it. But I've never actually gotten stitches from it, but I had put a few band-aids on before. Tell me about one of these. Take me through uh, what happened in a chisel accident. (laughs) Well, um, you know, I I think the most recent one was about a year and a half ago. And um, I was chiseling something. It was in my vice. Um, So it was secure. But it was just a matter of I had a hand leaning in the wrong direction. The chisel slid off the wood and went right into my finger. And it's one of those things, if you've ever been cut or, you know, it happens so quick, you don't realize even what happened. And, you know, um, and the next thing you're, you're saying bad words and (laughs) (laughs) run into the sink to clean it up and let's see how bad this is. Right. I was uh, running a Dremel and those will mess you up so (laughs) fast, but I had the stone tip on it and I was just doing, you know, terrible form i'm sure of how i shouldn't be doing this and i just slipped and went and hit my knuckle and just that little bit i didn't even feel it dug a hole into my knuckle that i had to go and get uh glued up yeah but yeah it's it's crazy how quick something can happen yeah and that's you know you really have to be focused because one slip one second of a mistake and you can really pay for it Mm -hmm. um so the training program is is it cool for you to see, have you been able to see someone who entered, you know, green in the knowledge of carpentry and then leave with, you know, a tangible skill? Yeah. I mean, that's probably the the neatest part. Um, you, you have all kinds of students. Let's say maybe you've had 20, but maybe there's one or two that really you could tell had a passion for woodworking and they, um, maybe they really listened when you went over things and you didn't have to tell them two, three, four, five, ten times, like you have to tell some people. But we have had a few that really showed a lot of potential um, and have taken jobs after they've graduated or even quit in the middle of the program but still bettered their life with another job that are doing woodworking. And um, they're thriving. I mean, they're uh, some of the top employees of the companies. And, um, you know, we're really proud of that aspect of it. You know, not everyone that's going through the program is going to be a woodworker. There's not that many jobs, you know, um, for them, but they still go on to that next job knowing that they can go to work every day, that they, they have some skills and they have more confidence and it makes them such a better employee for something else, even if it's not woodworking. Right. Have you, you had any of those, uh, uh, crew members come to you and say, listen, man, I was on a bad path and uh, this really changed my life or, or just kind of, you know, give you a, a breakdown of their experience and their appreciation? Yeah, I mean, you, you hear that, you know, a good bit. Um, a, a lot of people that, especially that start as crew members with Coalfield Development, um they may have had, you know, not much of a chance or maybe they weren't quite as privileged as some of the rest of us that had a dad at home that could teach them to do things. 
And so a lot of times what I run into is that a lot of these kids never had someone just sit down and listen to them that, that say, hey, you know, you're not doing this the right way. Let me show you how to do it the right way. You know, I care about you. I want you to do this the right way. And that makes a big difference. Um, you know, a lot of these kids, you have to, you have to kind of earn their respect and it takes a little while, but you know, it's very rewarding in that fact that they do, a lot of them do come full circle and they realize a lot of the potential that they had and, you know, the, the confidence, the self-confidence is everything. Right. Uh, that's, that's amazing. And the, there are, are there currently, uh, uh, former coal miners in the program is to, does the coal field takes in laid off coal miners things like that too right and retrains right. them absolutely in different skills there there are some um, in in the um, in the realm of coal field I mean coal field covers so many areas I mean they have fine woodworking they have solar panel installs they have agriculture they have construction crews that build homes and office buildings and so you know throughout that realm of maybe. 30 to 40 employees of crew members, there there are several that were coal miners, you know, that lost their jobs and are trying to retrain themselves to provide for their families. Mm -hmm. How important or is it important to you to continue doing what you're doing where you are? Like here in Appalachia where, you know, we all have chips on our shoulders and we kind of, you know, sometimes don't get represented exactly the way we want to. Like, is that important to you to stay here and to be successful? Oh, man, it's it's everything. I've had at least four really good job offers to leave this state, pack my wood shop up, come. I had someone go as far as like, you know, we will build you this building, pick out your machines, pick out your tools. Your wife likes Volkswagens. We'll take them to the Volkswagen dealership and she can pick out anyone that she wants. We'll give you property to build a house on. I've had so many, um, a few anyways, really good offers to do that. I love West Virginia. I love Appalachian people. I love my hometown of Hamlin. Um, and, and I never really ever wanted to leave there. My, my parents are there. My kids get to see their grandparents every day. That means something to me. Um, and so I can't picture ever leaving, you know, it was really, it really upset me a few years ago, um, when things seemed like they had gotten, you know, worse. Um, someone had ran a campaign that basically said, you know, the struggle to stay and, and it disgusted me. I couldn't stand it. I'm like, you know, we're, we're West Virginian people. A lot of people here didn't grow up with uh, running plumbing or, or bathrooms. And, and we, teach, we just give up when things get hard. You know, we work harder and we rise above it. And so, um, you know, I really didn't like that struggle to stay. It was never a struggle to stay. It was a struggle to figure out how to make it work. Right. But we were resilient, people with grit. Yeah, exactly. Um, what advice would you give to someone, you know, that's like, well, you know, I got to, uh, unfortunately, a lot of the way that we have things set up is we train people to leave. So people are sitting there thinking, well, I got to, you know, find me a good uh, something, some type of career path and then leave and then, you know, start that career. What would you say to them that like, hey, well, there are other sides to the story here and it is possible to be creative and to do sure. your own thing? Yeah, I mean, I think it it all comes down to, uh, you know, what what do you really need in life to be happy? And you simplify that to exactly what it is 
if it's money, if it's to live close to your family, whatever it is. And, you know, I think that too many people think there's this big picture out there and it's easier to find somewhere else and it's not. It, it's only going to come with hard work. And, you know, I'm proof that, uh, I mean, I had people tell me um, when I was early in the woodworking, they would like laugh like family members and say, or when are you going to like get a real job? You know, this is great and everything, but when are you going to get a real job? And, and it hurt me. I mean, it really hurt me. I was like working 50 hours in a wood shop. I was working hard. And I thought, how, how do you figure this isn't a real job? And you, you have to use those types of things as motivation to rise above and do better. And hard work conquers everything. I just never stopped working. It's funny that you mentioned that because I get the same thing with what I do still, you know, um, uh, in the beginning, a lot of people would say, well, yeah, oh, uh, you still doing that whole video thing, you know, and then they're like, well, yeah, you planning on getting a job or, or how's that going? I'm like, well, I'm kind of making money and being profitable at this and, and I love it. So I think I'm going to do this. Do you think people just aren't used to seeing someone love what they do or what is it that makes people think that? I think I, th- I think there's truth to that. Um probably the most common reaction I get from people is oh, you must really like what you must really love what you do. Is it, is it so nice to be able to do what you love? And of course it is. Um, some people probably think if it's easy, it's not, it's a lot of work. If you want to, you know, do like something like I do that you do, you have to be passionate about it and really put all, you're all into it. Um, yeah, I think a lot of people aren't happy with the jobs that they do. And, and they make sacrifices for their family because of that. And, you know, maybe even, I mean, even, even my wife, I think sometimes, you know, she makes sacrifices um, at her job, you know, to help provide for us. And so. Right. Well, yeah. Sacrifices and anything. And, you know, not everyone can be an entrepreneur, but I firmly believe that there is a path for everyone to be able to do what they love. So what would you say, like some someone who has that day job that they're not that happy with, but they have this cool idea, like how can they put that idea into fruition while still paying the bills and not quitting right. that job, you know, because a lot of people are afraid to take that leap. So right. how do you transition? I mean, I think that one of the first things that you do, you, you find someone, maybe they're, maybe they're close by that's, that's smarter than you. You listen, listen, so important. You you look across the country and you say, okay, here's a here's a woodworker that's doing his own thing, that that's making it. Maybe I could pick his brain. You ask you ask somebody for help. Um, a lot of times people are really eager to help. They're not people. I think that's a, a little bit of a misnomer. People think that people won't tell you their secrets or how they did this, and people love to share it with you. And then I think that's the first part. Figure out how someone else did it. And then the second part is is just work hard. Be prepared to work harder than everybody else. Because you know, even my business, we have steady work. We're 20 weeks lead time. It wasn't always that way. You know, it was 10, 10 years before I had, you know, developed clientele and, and the business was really rolling and things were going as good as they are now. So you have to have uh, grit. You got to have stick to it. Stick to your plan. You know, don't give up. You know, just because it didn't didn't work at that moment doesn't mean you have to quit, you know, and give yourself um, a chance to bloom where you're planted. When you were part-time, did it kind of snowball? Like you were, you would make certain things that would, 
you know, catch a following and how did, how did you market that to snowball into eventually full-time taking the wood shop full-time? So much of it is just providing a product that's so unique, you won't get it anywhere else. Um, and that's definitely what steamrolled the business. People are buying things that they, they physically cannot get somewhere else. And, you know, the, the difference is five years ago, I'd give it a call or an email and say, hey, um, we want a, a custom dining table. We want, um, you know, a modern or a shaker design. Um, how much would this cost? And the difference is now I get emails that say, I want a custom dining table, maybe in a certain design. What do I have to do to get on the list? And so it's kind of, it's kind of changed because we offer things so unique. I think people are willing um, to go the extra mile to get it. Gotcha. Did social media help? Yeah, it absolutely has. Um, I mean, social media, Facebook, Instagram, are like websites. People go to those more than they even go to your website anymore, it seems. Mm-hmm. So seeing the pictures, you've seen a really good response. and People love seeing the uh, the detail pictures. Maybe it's not even a finished product. Maybe it's you were just cutting a mortise and a tenon on a part, and they just want to see that. <laughs> so what's next? Like, what are the plans for the business? Are you, do you, are you comfortable where you're at? Do you want to grow? Do you want to, like, have, you know, a staff of five, ten employees? What's, what's the I, goal? I think that, you know, it's, it's interesting because I've had to reset goals. In my 20s, I wanted to have my own wood shop by the time I was 30. You know, I wanted to be in business for myself. And we've, we've achieved all of those things. And so it was time to set new goals. I think that, you know, you never, you never quit looking for what's next or what's, what could take your business to the next level. Um, one thing that I've ran into is that, you know, with my type of work, which is very unique and handmade, the more people that you bring in to work on it, the bigger chance you take that it will not look like handmade or unique. And so um, as far as the products that we're making now, you know, there's probably not much more growth as far as like how quick we can ship something out the door and not lose that handmade unique feel. For me, the challenges are, you know, there are a lot of old woodworkers that are in books that are legends. I mean, they're, they're so good. And those are the people that are really challenging me these days. Like those are the, the books are what I'm chasing now that I want to, grow the business, be able to provide for other people's families, um, and somehow end up in those books. I mean, that's, that's what I'm chasing. Need a custom furniture piece that will set itself apart from the rest as soon as it enters your home or business? You can find Eddie Austin Woodworks by liking their Facebook and Instagram pages. Also check them out online at eddieaustinwoodworks.com. Eddie, thank you again for the conversation, and we will purposely hold additional team meetings just so we can stare at the beautiful conference table you've created for us. Appalachian Startup is a bi-weekly podcast, so be sure to check back for more stories of entrepreneurship, like us on Facebook and Instagram, and support the show by grabbing a sticker from our online store at AppalachianStartup.com. Review our podcast on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud as well. We are on Patreon. You can support the show there and allow us to showcase more businesses in Appalachia. Stay tuned for more stories of underdogs on the rise.